is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, you know how little water there is in California? Yeah. May, yeah, well, it may turn out that the feds are going to make more of it go away. We'll go in de- yeah, we'll go in depth. That doesn't sound good. No. We're also going to look at why rent is dropping across Southern California. Also, some music composers are speaking out against Metro. Music to our ears. We start with the federal government proposing options for what could lead to major water cuts from the Colorado River. Alicia Marcus is with Stanford University's Water in the West program. Thanks for being back with us. Oh, happy to be here. So uh, we were all excited the past few weeks because we had all that rain and all that snow in the Sierra and everybody was jumping up and down going, oh, great, we're going to have tons of water. The drought is over. And now comes word that the federal government may impose something that it has never done before. What is that? Well, uh, we've been seeing a 23-year drought on the Colorado River, and the two largest reservoirs in the country, the ones from which the lower basin states, Arizona, Nevada, and California, get their water, are at the lowest level they've been at since they were filled decades ago. And so while this rain and snow is a glorious thing, it's not quite as much on the Colorado River system as we're seeing in parts of the Sierras, but still a bounty uh, is just a a drop in the bucket, so to speak, uh, compared to 23 years of drawing it down. So it's given us a reprieve of six months to a year, but six months to a year is a nanosecond when you think about the consequences of going to what's known as Deadpool on the Colorado, where we don't get any. So uh, it's a necessary step. So, yeah, I'm, I'm hearing the federal government is going to try to do this evenly and uh, as fairly as possible. Is it possible other states might uh, complain a bit and say, look, California got all that rain and snow. Uh, they could they could stand with less of it and we could we should get more of it. Well, it's actually interesting because the what the federal government proposed is two alternatives to study upon which they will make. A decision. And one of them is equal cuts among the lower basin states of about 13%, which is a lot less uh, than they would have been asking for if it weren't for this bounty of rain and snow we just got, but nonetheless, still a lot. And the other alternative is to strictly follow the water rights scheme, which benefits California greatly at uh, massive harm to Arizona, which is junior in the water rights scheme and agreed to that. But I think they're not going to want to destroy Arizona. So I think what they've done is they've basically laid out two options. One is let's take these cuts evenly. And the other is let's adhere to strictly to the water rights system. And then they study what the impacts are on the environment, on the economy, on recreation, on a whole host of other things within this document. And then they will make a choice uh, later in the summer in July or August after hearing from everyone. And yes, you're right. Uh, every state argues for what benefits them. What was interesting here is that at the end of January, California put in an option and the other six states put in an option. And the six state option basically hammered California <laughs> to get at all of them. Like California put one uh, forward and reminded everybody of their seniority. And the Department right. of Interior is given two you know, pretty reasonable well, bookends rather than picking one or the other. Of those. I, I mean, it, uh, one of the things that makes it complicated, right, is that California, I mean, the argument that we have is we need the water for agriculture. And other states say, well, we need it for whatever. But it is the case that our agriculture feeds 
most of the nation. So what I'm getting at is, don't we just deserve more water? Well, it's it's one way to put it. I mean, there's plenty of agriculture also in Arizona, including very senior water. It's not a whole state. There, there's seniority and uh, seniority within each state. It's just that big chunks of the center of Arizona reliant on the Central Arizona Project are very junior. Yuma farmers are very senior, virtually as senior as the Imperial Irrigation District, and they feed the nation as well. So it's it's an interesting thing. It's not just an equity call where the federal government can just make it up uh, the way you actually can do in eastern states. Uh, we have this very strict seniority system. But the fact is, even though we do use the lion's share of the water, there are people and agriculture dependent upon it. Mm. Um, and so there's an equity impact uh, either way. I mm. mean, my guess is they'll end up somewhere in between. And if we're lucky, the states will negotiate it amongst themselves somewhere okay. in between. Right. Okay, all right. Uh, Felicia, you still there? Did we lose you? Yeah, no, I'm Oh, okay, sorry. Uh, I wanted to thank you for being here with us today. Uh, Felicia Marcus with the uh, Stanford University's Water in the West program. Right now, though, it is cheaper to rent an apartment in Southern California. Rent anywhere from 2 to 4% lower compared to late last summer. So with us to try to explain all this is Anthony Lopez, who's a realtor with REMAX Vision. Anthony, thanks for being with us. Hello, how are you? Uh, I'm reasonably okay, but that's a very long discussion, which we don't have time for. <laughs> all right, all right. No. But don't open that can of yeah, worms. Yeah, don't don't do, don't go there. But uh, let's talk about rent, though. Um, yes. So, at at first look, it sounds great. Rent is lower than last year, but I know from experience that sometimes things that look good have a dark lining, not a silver one. Does this one have? Sorry, can you repeat that question? Yeah, I mean, sometimes things that on the surface look like they're they're good things, lower rent, leads to something that perhaps isn't so good down the road. Is that the case here? Um, well, I mean, it, reasons for lower rent right now are kind of all over the place. So, I um, mean, a few examples I can give you. Um, it's like, so there was, I had one recently, okay, that I was listing, there was a match model that somebody else was listing for 3000 okay? My client wanted to list it, uh, they wanted to get it rented fast, you know, so they put it at twenty seven fifty, and we ended up getting fifteen applications. Where as the one that was listed for three thousand, uh, that one was still in the market. It maybe it was it had to been like thirty five days at that point where we got it uh, rented out within a week. But another reason is because you're seeing a lot of uh, landlords that don't allow pets, and you know for most people their pets are like their children. You know, so um, that's that one in particular which was going for three thousand. That one didn't allow pets as well. So my client asked me. You know, what should I do? Do you recommend that I uh, that I accept pets? And I said, I would, I mean, if you're okay with it, I would highly recommend it just require pet insurance, you know, because if you say no to pets, that's automatically detours a lot of potential candidates, you know. Uh, and I've been seeing quite a bit of people who don't allow pets, but another problem is uh, low credit scores. So, um, you know, they're requiring, like some of them are requiring over a 680 and there's quite a few people that uh, aren't even around there. So that is one issue. Um, so, uh, well, uh, the, the issue, though, is rents are, are, are coming, uh, lowering a bit. Uh, we expect them to go up and up and up, and they've been very expensive. They're still very expensive. But we're seeing that uh, trend turn back around. Why is the trend changing as far as the price of rent? Um, just, uh, I, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure why it's changing, but I would imagine. So, like, if... 
just the, the cost, you know, if you look at the overall cost compared to last year, um, I mean, it's, it's kind of pretty, pretty significantly, you know, and many people can't afford uh, what they're charging for a three bedroom, you know? So, I mean, due to a lack of applicants, the landlord has no, pro no, uh, they have no choice but to bring the, pr the price down. All right, there we go. That's uh, Anthony Lopez, who is a realtor for Remax Vision. A new study from Kaiser Family Foundation finds nearly one in five American adults say they've had a family member who was killed by a gun, and that is including suicides. Uh, Kelly Drain is the research uh, director for the Giffords Law Center to Prevent uh, Gun Violence. Kelly, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So one in five American adults have uh, had a family member killed by a gun. That seems to me to be an incredible number. And I would presume, given the other numbers that we know about gun violence, we are far leading the developed world in that number, are we not? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Americans are 25 times more likely to be killed in a gun homicide than um, people that live in similar high-income countries. And the, the epidemic of mass shootings that we see here is something unlike any other country in the world. And yet, you know, the sad truth is, Kelly, that no matter how much we talk about it, no matter how many mass shootings there are, no matter how many statistics like the one we're just talking about that we hear about, nothing really of any consequence ever gets done. Yeah, well, you know, I think certainly progress has been slow on this issue. I would say that we have passed more than 500 laws at the state level to protect communities from gun violence. But clearly, um, even those policies are not enough. And there's more action that states and the federal government need to take. Look at California. California has some of, and I'm sure you know this, has some of the strictest gun laws in the nation and certainly hasn't stopped mass killings here with guns. Right. Well, California does have one of the lowest gun death rates in the country. Um, so and California is impacted by the fact that it neighbors states like Arizona that have incredibly weak gun laws. So it's not to say that California's laws themselves aren't working, but they need some help from their neighbors and from the federal government to to, um, to shore up a little bit. Here's the problem, uh, as I see it, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, we've had an assault weapons ban before. Uh, the numbers and statistics show that it did some good. It, you know, nothing's going to stop all shootings or all mass shootings. But, you know, the idea is to limit the number or at least limit the number of people killed in mass shootings. But since that uh, assault weapons ban and it going away, more and more guns and assault weapons have flooded the streets, and we have more guns than ever before. So even if we were to bring back an assault weapons ban or laws that we previously had in this country, how much good would that do with so many more guns already on the street, short of uh, the nightmare scenario of many gun rights supporters of uh, uh, police officers coming in and taking your guns away from you? Yeah, well, fortunately, I think there are a lot of steps we can take that don't have anything to do with with confiscating guns or taking guns away from people um, or from all people. I think we can um, implement policies that look at risky behaviors that people have um, demonstrated. So things like um, people that have been convicted of domestic abuse, people that have been convicted of violent crimes, um, and we can we can pass laws that sort of um, target those individuals and ensure that they don't have access to firearms. 
And we know that even with the guns that are out in circulation already, these laws can help and they can reduce the frequency and lethality of gun violence in this country. Do you ever just feel that it's an uphill battle and one that ultimately is very hard to win in this country? You know, I think it's a really challenging issue to work on, but I have a lot of hope and optimism that, um, you know, there are so many different things we can do to to prevent gun violence in this country. So many small steps we can take that would make a difference. Um, and I have a lot of optimism that our leaders um, and, and the American people, you know, we know when we poll people, 90 plus percent of Americans want to see these laws and policies implemented and passed. Um and so I have a lot of confidence that one day we will get there. Kelly, what do you make of the fact that uh, we saw in this most recent case at the uh, bank, as in so many other mass sh- shootings, news always comes out a couple of days later. Well, the shooter bought their guns legally uh, just a few days before the event. What do you make of that? That that does seem to be the case so often. The shooter bought the guns legally. Yeah, you know, I think we probably need to take a closer look at sort of what are the um, categories for legal gun ownership. But I also think it it um, it raises the question of the importance of red flag laws. So this individual, you know, he hadn't committed any crime. He wasn't um, prohibited under any federal or state law. But yet he had dis- displayed, uh, to my understanding, some incredibly concerning behaviors. I wouldn't be surprised, given what we know about other mass shooters, if family and friends were kind of aware that this individual was in crisis. And we have laws um, often referred to as red flag laws that allow law enforcement and members of the community to petition a court to remove firearms in these kinds of circumstances. So again, I think there's a lot of options we can look at that might have prevented the Louisville shooting, as well as many others. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Kelly Drain, Research Director for the Giverts Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Information from those leaked Pentagon documents coming out fast and furious. It's all spreading quickly. Because of the Internet, because of social media. David Ariosto is the senior national security correspondent for the Cyber Brief, which tracks national security news. David, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure. So in this world of social media, is it even possible for any country to keep top secrets? You know, it's a a really interesting question. I I think, you know, if you allow me, I'll kind of just go into sort of how the government classifies data, and they'll sort of answer that question that way. We'll we'll allow you for about 38 (laughs) seconds, and then we'll move on. But make it quick, counselor. (laughs) All right. right. So basically, it's confidential, secret, and top secret. And these assessments, you know, have been revised over the years, but pretty much they came out of the Second World War. And at that time, you know, at the beginning of the Cold War, there were just fewer avenues for which um, information could could be gleaned and, and extracted. You know, the China has, has emerged itself as, as a major cyber espionage um, components put out there in terms of the threat analysis. The U.S. intelligence community comes out. But, you know, there are these old style ways of getting information and they the, the old ways still do apply in, 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 in many different capacities. So, so essentially, to answer your question, there are things that governments can do. Um, and we've seen that. We, we actually put that out in our open source report um, in terms of changing processes, you know, restricting access um, to both the facilities themselves and who gets the briefings. Um, but at least in the past, in the old way of doing things, you could restrict the, the channels of information more. 
now when when you put things out on social media, it's just it's just out there, and there's there's ways to claw these things back. But generally speaking, there's copies made, copies of copies of copies made, and and essentially once it's out, it's out, and then you're, you the the damage control is essentially just getting out in front of it, talking to allies, talking to security partners, and letting them know that you know what the security picture looks like in the United States. You know, it, it sometimes can be can be compromised, but by, by Things like what we saw this week. Yeah, and it seems to me that uh, also with the, along with the problem of not being able to vacuum something up once it's out on the internet because people download it, copy it, respread it. Uh, but also things can get changed. Things can be altered. You can take the secret government document. You hear the news that uh, oh, the Pentagon's very upset about these leaked documents, and then somebody alters the document, reshares it, and it says something different, and it puts uh, us in a bad light, our allies in a bad light, or embarrasses uh, and embarrasses a country, uh, harms our relationships with those countries. Is there anything that could be done about that? You know, it's it it actually is a bit of a clue in terms of, you know, who who might be somewhat tangentially connected, because that there's a pattern that starts to emerge when you when you look at these things. Certainly the Russians in the past have and when in, in regard to some of their disinformation campaigns might put out information that's 95 percent accurate and then sprinkle in maybe 5% disinformation. And we saw that with uh, with COVID. Um, we saw that actually back in the 1980s um, during the HIV epidemic in which uh, certain accusations were lobbed against the CIA. Um, so, you know, w- when you start to piece together these things, sort of understanding the, the, the past trends sometimes is informative of, of figuring out sort of how to, how to tighten that circle of, of where you're looking. I think the difference now is that, in the past, organizations that were, were leakers, particularly, say, WikiLeaks, um, they tried this in the past. You remember that back in uh, 2007, there was a, so a leak video out of Iraq, and, and there were some, some questions about whether it had been, been adjusted and edited. So what WikiLeaks did subsequently is they started working in partnership with media organizations like The Times or Der Spiegel in Germany. And in doing so, they, they developed a certain level of credibility. Now, fast forward. A decade later, uh, the press has, has has undergone a credibility problem, at least according to, to recent polling. And so, you know, the, the onus to to really rely on journalist organizations is not at the zenith that it, it used to be. So you can push these things out on social media where people are typically getting a lot of their information, which doesn't have the rigor of the editorial boards and the questions of redacting information like individuals who might be named. You know, places it, like Ukraine. Yeah, you yeah. know, I, I, I was thinking as you were talking that this is going to have a profound effect on movies. And I'll tell you why. Because you know how in all those movies the, the bad guy is trying to get top secret information from the good guy and they torture the good guy to get the information. Now all they have to do is say, look at my Twitter account. <laughs> it's It's a brave new world, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, the bad guy is uh, torturing James Bond. You must tell me your Twitter handle. <laughs> and then uh, that solves it. Well, David Ariosto, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. This a senior national security correspondent for the Cypher Brief, which tracks national security news. If you've been down to Metro's Westlake MacArthur Park Station, your downtown L.A. recently, you may have heard loud classical music being played. Well, it's not for your enjoyment. It's meant to deter people from hanging out for long periods 
as a way to cut down on crime. I don't know. I would like it because I grew up with a lot of classical music. Yeah, but but uh, it depends on the music and when. Uh, uh, years ago, uh, in downtown Manhattan, uh, in uh, near City Hall, there was a store that was plagued by uh, you know they thought they were being plagued by by vagrants mm-hmm. at night, so they played on a loop endless Barry Manilow tunes, oh. <laughs> tunes. and it apparently worked. Wow. Uh, so, so much for Barry Manilow, but it worked. <laughs> and Barry says, thank you. Uh, Metro says the music they're playing is from a royalty-free playlist, but using music in this way without permission from the composer does raise some questions, especially if the composer of that music does not like it being used that way. Alex uh, Joachim is a classical music composer. He's got a new album out called uh, Chasing Moons. It's uh, coming out on Friday. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Alex, uh, so I understand that uh, that you know of uh, some people whose music has been used. It was not royalty free, and they raised a bit of a stink about it. Are they right to raise a stink about it? Hey, Charles and Rob, thank you so much for having me uh, on. And yeah, I, I think it is really important the way that our music is used. Um, it, you know, our music is kind of an extension of ourselves, and seeing it used in a way that we're not happy with, it, it's definitely something really important for us to be able to have a conversation about. But this whole notion of taking music and what they're doing, of course, is if you're using it as they're using it in the subway or the example I gave uh, with the Barry Manilow uh, tunes, uh, you're really turning music into a weapon, right? Right, right, exactly. We see kind of this history of weaponization uh, of music throughout, you know, all over the place, uh, throughout history. And it is it is kind of a scary thing because music is such a pure and, and beautiful thing on its own, but then pe- people can can use it and turn it uh, in ways that were kind of uh, not you know not for the best. And looping music also would be an issue. Like, say, for example, uh, one of my favorite classical pieces is "Fanfare for the Common Man" by Aaron Copland. But I can imagine if I was locked in a cell somewhere, first of all, I would not be happy about that. <laughs> but if they played "Fanfare" uh, like for forty-eight hours straight on a loop, at some point, I would eventually become to uh, hate it, and it would cause me uh, mental issues. Right. Exactly. It's actually music has actually been used uh, as a form of torture uh, in some cases uh, in Waco, Texas and Guantanamo. And it is it is really interesting how you can take something so beautiful and pristine as, you know, fanfare for a common man and turn it on its head in a way that is uh, you know detrimental. Well, like I said in the Barry Mandel, how many times can you listen to Mandy <laughs> being played over and over again? So is six, there, six times. Is there a solution? <laughs> is there? Uh, I would say four, but okay. Uh, is there a solution to this? Right. I mean, we we look at different. I mean, there's so many, so much complexity that goes into uh, working with people that are experiencing homelessness. And I know some organizations that are bringing classical music into spaces uh, that are not traditionally for classical music, such as uh, an organization called Arts Capacity, and and they're bringing music into prisons and. It's really beautiful what you see when uh, you are using classical music to elevate people and to kind of bring them into the conversation instead of to deter people. And I think it it makes such a big uh, difference when we change the narrative. And that's a lot of what I'm trying to do uh, with my new album and just like giving people an opportunity to listen to this music, to be a part of it and to help them understand it. So instead of blaring music, uh, you know, in the Metro what if we gave, uh, you know, these people an instrument and gave them a music lesson and, and were able to bring uh, people into the conversation that aren't typically included? Oh, and let them play the music uh, badly, and uh, that would keep the other people from 
Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and, and let's say that uh, Metro hears you and they hear what you're saying. They say, yeah, you know what? Uh, we, we only intended to use royalty free music, uh, music that's no longer under uh, copyright. Uh, and so they say we're only using uh, music that has no copyright. But that's still a problem for you, isn't it? Yeah, ex- yes, absolutely. Because, um, you know, I'm seeing this medium and this form that I I love and that's my livelihood, uh, which is you know, writing music, film music, classical music, all all of the intersections of that. And I'm still seeing it kind of as as a weaponization. But are, are we able to to turn the volume down? Are we able to have conversations about this music with, with these people experiencing homelessness? Are we able to bring them into a sphere? Because I believe that music can elevate. It can elevate a space um, and that classical music especially lately has been a lot more uh, democratized um there's this idea that anybody can listen to classical music anybody can be a part of it and this is kind of a newer idea that uh, i think classical um institutions are embracing and so um i think when it's used in the wrong way absolutely there's an issue with it but when it's used in the right way and we're using it as an invitation for people to to you know experience this music I think it's beautiful. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Alex uh, Joaquin, classical music composer, brand new album, Chasing Moons, which is uh, coming out Friday. Okay, so I have referred to my esteemed colleague over here. I'm going to start calling him uh, Scooter. Who would that be, by the way? That would be you. Uh, uh, Scooter Feldman. Yes. And there's a reason I'm calling you Scooter Feldman, because you actually have a scooter. But yes. do you want to tell us why well, you are rolling around K&X with yes. a scooter? Yeah, it's not one of those electric scooters no. that you rent on, no. this, on the street. No, I, I, I broke my foot. Ow. Yeah, and so uh, I can't <laughs> walk on the foot. Right. So I've got the scooter it, to get it's around. It's an e-scooter. It's an e-scooter, yeah. but, but it's the foot that's broken, right? So right. The idea is to keep the foot off the ground. So the breaking of the foot is due to what they called a stress fracture but yes which leads to the other question what is stressing you out that your foot fractured you who co-host this show (laughs) ask a question about what is stressing me out seriously seriously dude i think i better get myself checked out for some stress fractures man (laughs) all right that's it for uh anyway you're going to be uh not with us for uh that sounds like like i died yeah i'm not with you you're not no longer he's no longer with us I, I'm going to have some surgery next Monday, and I'll be right. gone for a couple of weeks. Okay, all right. You but know. you're here for this week. And if I die, I'll come back, and I'll haunt you. Thank you. We'll put you on the air, too. Yeah. Uh, that's it for KNX In-Depth today. We're going to be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.